This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Infamous Locales. In this final chapter, I'll take you to a place that I consider perhaps the most infamous of all places in the annals of true crime. The history of this location includes suicides, murders, deadly freak accidents, no less than two serial killers, and one creepy, mysterious death. In fact, there's so much true crime history to report that it's going to take two episodes to cover it all. This is Chapter 3 of Infamous Locales, The Cecil Hotel, Part 1. The 19-story Cecil Hotel sits on a plot of land located at 640 South Main Street in downtown Los Angeles. Built in 1924 by hotelier William Banks Hanner, it was designed in the Beaux-Arts style of architecture, popular at that time. Its features included a marble lobby, stained glass windows, and Grecian-style statues and columns. The final cost for the building totaled $1 million, and Hanner banked on his hotel being a popular draw for the increasing number of tourists and business travelers into downtown Los Angeles. Several other hotels were built in the area at the same time, including the Roosevelt in Hollywood and the nearby Los Angeles Biltmore Hotel, now called the Millennium Biltmore. The Cecil Hotel opened for business in 1927, and for a few years, visitors flocked to the hotel. But in 1929, the Great Depression hit the U.S. economy, and hotels like the Cecil would see a rapid decline in business. The Cecil continued to maintain a reputation as an upscale tourist hotel, but just barely. By the 1940s, it had greatly lost its luster, and by the 1950s, it had been reduced to a transient hotel located on the edge of Skid Row. The Skid Row area of Los Angeles became home to a high number of transients due to several factors. First, its location near downtown Los Angeles provided cheap transportation like bus lines, and the main hubs dumped passengers in this central location. Second, organizations that served the poor, like soup kitchens and free clinics, also abounded in the downtown area. And finally, the populated urban center made it ideal for panhandling. By the 1990s, the transient and homeless population reached a record 10,000 within a four-mile radius of the Cecil Hotel. The Cecil provided approximately 600 small rooms, many sharing a communal bathroom and shower. While the lobby remained somewhat grand-looking with its ornate decor, the rooms were tiny and merely functional, with a small bed, tiny sink, and not much else. The rooms went for a cheap daily rate, and an even cheaper hourly rate in some cases. But even before the Cecil began its decline, and became infamous for housing serial murderers, it earned a reputation as a place with a dark history. The first rumors about the Cecil being cursed began soon after its opening and would continue for the next several decades. The Cecil Hotel quickly gained a reputation as a place where bad things just seemed to happen. Several suicides would take place there, the first in 1931. A resident of Manhattan Beach, California, W.K. Norton, was reported missing in November of that year. It was later discovered that he had checked into the Cecil under the name James Willies from Chicago. A week later, on November 19, 1931, he was discovered dead in his hotel room, having ingested a poison capsule. Less than a year later, in September 1932, Benjamin Dodich, age 25, died of suicide by shooting himself in the head. He was found by a member of the hotel's housekeeping staff. In July 1934, a retired Army Medical Corps Sergeant, Louis Borden, took his life in a particularly bloody and gruesome way. He used a straight razor to slash his own throat. He left a suicide note explaining that many factors, including his declining health, led to his decision to end his life. Then in 1937, the first mysterious death at the Cecil Hotel occurred. 25-year-old Grace Margot 
either fell or jumped from her ninth-story hotel window, but instead of falling to the ground, she got caught in telephone wires located between the building and the street. She became entangled in the telephone wires as she fell. She was taken to a nearby hospital and died of her injuries without regaining consciousness. She was staying at the Cecil with a sailor named M.W. Madison, but he could not shed any light on why his companion fell from the window. Apparently, he was not considered a suspect in her death. Three more suicides occurred at the Cecil in the next couple of years. Roy Thompson, aged 35, jumped from the top floor of the hotel and was found dead on the skylight of the neighboring building in 1938. The following year, Navy officer Irwin Neblett, aged 39, was found dead in his hotel room, and it was determined he had ingested poison. Finally, in 1940, a teacher, Dorothy Skyger, 45, also ingested poison. She was found near death, according to newspaper reports. No follow-up reports can be found, so it is unknown if she survived. Then a horrible and tragic event took place at the Cecil in September of 1944. 19-year-old Dorothy Jean Purcell was staying in a room at the Cecil with 38-year-old shoe salesman Ben Levine. During that night, Dorothy reported that she awoke with severe stomach pains and went to the bathroom. To her surprise, she later told authorities, she gave birth to a baby boy. She had no idea she was pregnant, she claimed. Not wanting to awaken Levine, and most likely not knowing how to explain the infant, she panicked. She said she thought the child had been stillborn, so she opened the window and threw the baby out of it. The tiny body landed on the roof of the next building. The body was discovered, and investigators quickly determined that the child must have been thrown from the adjacent building, the Cecil Hotel. They found Dorothy Jean by conducting a room-to-room -room search. She was charged with murder when an autopsy determined that the baby had been born alive. Three psychiatrists, in those days they were called alienists, testified at Dorothy Jean's trial that she was, quote, mentally confused at the time of the incident. She was found not guilty by reason of insanity and sent to a hospital for psychiatric treatment. Salesman Ben Levine was not charged with any crime and only called as a material witness. Authorities believed his account that he knew nothing about the birth of the baby. Seven years passed between suicides before Robert Smith jumped from the seventh floor window of the Cecil to his death in 1947. In 1954, Helen Gurney from San Francisco also jumped from the seventh floor. But like Grace Margot, who fell into the telephone wires, Helen's fall was broken before she hit the ground. The 55-year-old checked into room 704 a week earlier under an assumed name. On October 23rd, she jumped, landing on top of the Cecil Hotel marquee. A witness, 26-year-old Melvin Hinckley, was so horrified by seeing the woman fall to her death that he had to be rushed to a nearby hospital for treatment. Room 704 would become a popularly requested room for seekers of the macabre. It would be the first, but not the last, infamous room at the Cecil Hotel. On February 11, 1962, Julia Frances Moore, a 50-year-old woman from St. Louis, jumped from her eighth-floor room and landed in a second-story light well. A bus ticket from St. Louis was found in her room. While she only had 59 cents left in her purse, a bank book from Springfield, Illinois, showed a balance of $1,800. She left no suicide note. The following fall, in October 1962, Pauline Otten, age 27, was occupying a ninth-floor room at the Cecil Hotel and got into an argument with her estranged husband, Dewey. Dewey would later tell police that his wife had come to his place of employment earlier in the day to discuss a reconciliation. He'd taken her back to the hotel to talk, but the conversation deteriorated into a shouting match. At that time, Dewey left the hotel. After he'd gone, Pauline, distraught, leapt from the window. As her body fell to the sidewalk, she struck a passing pedestrian, George Giannini, age 65. Both Pauline and Giannini were killed instantly. There were no witnesses to this bizarre incident, so authorities at first believed it was a double suicide. However, during the investigation, 
it was determined that Giannini had his hands in his pockets at the time of his death, a very unusual detail not found in suicide jumpers. As well, he was still wearing his shoes. Virtually all people who die of suicide by jumping from windows or other structures are found without shoes, either due to losing them during the fall or upon impact. Then, in 1964, the first murder of an adult occurred at the Cecil Hotel. Goldie Osgood was a longtime tenant of the Cecil. By 1964, the retired telephone operator had occupied a room there for six years. She was well-known in the area and had been given the nickname Pigeon Goldie by area residents. She was often seen in nearby Pershing Park, wearing her trademark Dodgers baseball cap, and with a sack full of bird feed she took to feed the pigeons. But on June 4, 1964, she was found in her hotel room, beaten, raped, and stabbed. The coroner determined that she had died as a result of strangulation. A hand towel was used as a ligature. Not long after she was discovered, a 29-year-old man named Jacques Ellinger was arrested for her murder. He had been seen walking through Pershing Park in bloodstained clothing. He was an acquaintance of Goldie's and admitted that he'd been near the hotel at the time of the murder. But a few days later, Ellinger was cleared of all charges and set free after investigators determined that he'd had no connection to Goldie's murder. Detectives believe that Goldie's murder may have been committed by the same person who was responsible for an earlier homicide. On May 15th, Mrs. Viva Brown, age 50, was found in a nearby hotel room, also raped and murdered. Area residents remembered Goldie Osgood as a warm and friendly woman who loved to feed and care for the park's pigeons and other birds. A memorial was created in her honor in Pershing Park. Her murderer was never found. Another person jumped to their death, this time from a 12th-floor window, on December 20, 1975. The woman had checked into the Cecil four days earlier. One way this incident is set apart from all the rest is that the woman, to this day, has never been identified. On December 1, 1976, a 26-year-old man, Jeffrey Thomas Paley, went up to the roof of the Cecil Hotel with a 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle and hundreds of rounds of ammunition and began firing into a nearby bank building. Within minutes, he was discovered, arrested, and taken into custody. Paley told arresting officers that he hadn't intended to hurt anyone. To prove this, he pointed out that it was 2 o'clock in the morning at the time he began shooting into the building, a time when no one would have been occupying the offices. However, one bank employee... John Wentlett was working at 2 a.m. when a bullet came through the window and within a foot of him, striking a nearby wall. Paley said he was only trying to prove how easy it was for someone like him, a, quote, former prisoner and mental hospital patient, unquote, to obtain a dangerous weapon. He said he was trying to call attention to the lax gun laws in the state when he visited a Hollywood gun shop and purchased the weapon for $63 he'd filled out the form that he alleged, quote, nobody checks up on before returning to his room at the Cecil Hotel with the rifle. Before he began shooting, he called the Los Angeles Times and told the desk clerk that he intended to position himself on top of a hotel near Broadway and shoot people. The clerk called the police, and they began a search for the sniper. But it wasn't until the bank employee called to report shots being fired from the roof of the Cecil that he was found. Paley was taken into custody without incident and charged with assault and attempted murder. But it was in 1984 that the Cecil Hotel's most infamous resident moved into room 1402 to use as his base of operations, serial killer Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker. Ricardo Leva Munoz Ramirez was born on Leap Day, February 29, 1960. His mother Mercedes was a factory worker, and his father Julian was a former Juarez, Mexico police officer. Now living in El Paso, Texas, 
Julian was employed laying track for the railroads. Richie, as he was called by his family, was the last of five children born to Julian and Mercedes. He was doted on as the baby of the family, especially by his sister Ruth. His three brothers were Reuben, Joseph, and Robert. As a boy, Richard Ramirez had two serious head injuries, one at the age of two when a heavy piece of furniture toppled on him, and again at the age of five when he was hit at high force by a swing in a local park. He was knocked unconscious for several minutes and would receive a deep wound in his scalp. Later, Richard would suffer from seizures. A doctor would later tell his parents that this was most likely due to his previous head injuries. While he was characterized by his family as a stubborn child, he was also described by most as shy and quiet. He preferred to play alone and spent a lot of time daydreaming as a boy. His teachers would say that he was a good boy and a decent student who never made trouble. He excelled at sports and even quarterbacked for his school team. However, after one game, he suffered a seizure on the field, and his coach, without delay, kicked him off the team. After that, Richard's sister said his grades began to slip, and he didn't care about school anymore. At age 12, Richard began spending a lot of time with his older cousin Mike. Mike was a soldier who had recently returned from serving in Vietnam. Mike was also an angry and violent young man who was obsessed with guns, sex, and fighting. Richard considered him his hero and looked up to him, wanting to emulate everything his cool older cousin did. Richard spent hours with his cousin, who regaled him with stories about the war in Vietnam, describing in gruesome detail the killing he'd done while overseas. These stories were not limited to the battlefield, but Mike also boasted about terrorizing, torturing, and killing villagers. He also enjoyed telling his young cousin, in great detail, about raping and murdering Vietnamese women. Richard didn't have to wonder if this was true, because Mike showed him many Polaroid pictures he'd brought back with him of these exploits. Richard was fascinated by the photos of the graphic rapes and murders Mike shared with him and became obsessed, thumbing through these pictures for hours. Richard also cruised the town with cousin Mike, smoking pot and listening to heavy metal music. On some of these outings, Mike outlined for Richard the techniques of jungle warfare, how to remain invisible, how to sneak up on an enemy, and how to kill quickly and silently under the cover of darkness. Richard would later put these terrible lessons to use. Richard's parents didn't approve of him spending so much time away from home with his much older cousin. He was skipping school and coming home very late. Richard, used to getting his way as the baby of the family, and the only one of his father's sons who did not suffer severe beatings from him, began to rebel. He would sometimes stay out all night, electing to sleep in a nearby cemetery rather than come home to his father's anger and rules. Richard was at his cousin Mike's house once again on May 4, 1973. They were playing pool when Mike's wife Jessie returned home from the grocery store. She began to complain to her husband about hanging around the house with his kid cousin, playing games and smoking pot. She was angry that Mike still hadn't tried to find a job while they were barely making enough money to get by. Mike and Jessie had two young sons, and she was tired of worrying about money when she had an able-bodied husband who refused to work to help support the family. Mike told her to shut up, and when she continued berating him, went to the refrigerator and pulled a gun from the freezer. He pointed it at her and told her he'd kill her if she didn't shut up. She didn't believe him and told him so. Then, in front of his own children and his 13-year-old cousin, Mike shot his wife point-blank in the face. She fell to the floor, dead. As his young children screamed and Richard stood frozen in shock, Mike told him to leave the apartment and tell no one what he'd witnessed. Richard returned home and didn't mention the murder he'd just seen his cousin commit, even when later that evening, his parents received a phone call telling them about Jesse's murder and Mike's arrest. He never told anyone about it until many years later, when being interviewed about a series of murders he himself was charged with. The summer after Richard Ramirez witnessed his cousin murder his wife, he took a bus to Los Angeles to visit his brother Reuben. 
it was the first time he'd left El Paso. Ruben had begun using heroin as a teen and would steal cars and burglarize homes to support his habit. Richard had also begun breaking into homes and stealing when he was just 12. He enjoyed the rush of being inside strangers' homes and going through their things. It gave him a thrill and a feeling of power. In Los Angeles, Ruben began hanging out at the Greyhound bus terminal downtown. It was the place to go to score drugs and fence stolen goods. There were many other thieves who hung out there, and they would share information. What neighborhoods were the best targets to hit to steal valuable items, how to avoid the cops, and how to leave no evidence behind. Richard also learned that Los Angeles was made up of over 90 different communities, many with their own police departments. It was easier to avoid being identified and caught if burglars moved around to different communities. Information was not often shared between police jurisdictions, they learned, so criminals were less likely to call attention to themselves by working in several areas. While in Los Angeles, Richard accompanied Reuben on a few burglaries. From him, he learned all these lessons and more like how to case a house for obstacles like dogs, alarms, and motion detectors, and how to pick the easiest targets. When Richard returned home after the summer was over, his behavior became worse. He would no longer attend school, and his drug use increased. He started spending more time at his sister Ruth's home. Ruth had gotten married to a man named Roberto. Roberto was obsessed with sex and began sneaking out at night, peeping through windows, hoping to catch sight of a naked woman. Richard began to go along with Roberto on these peeping Tom missions. Richard also began taking other types of drugs beyond pot and cocaine, although cocaine would continue to be his drug of choice. In his teen years, he also experimented with hallucinogens like LSD and PCP. During these drug trips, he began to believe he was communicating with Satan. Richard had been raised in a traditional Roman Catholic home and had attended church and learned to pray as a young boy. He would later say that he believed in God very fervently until about the age of 18, when he became an atheist. He admitted that when he first began having dark fantasies about rape and murder, he understood that this was wrong and that God would be angry with him. So he decided to turn his attention towards Satan instead, knowing the Dark Lord would be pleased, or at least this is what Richard chose to believe. The truth was that from a very young age, Ramirez was fascinated by dark subjects like death, rape, torture, mutilation, and murder. He'd long had violent thoughts and fantasies, and this had been fueled by spending time with his murderous cousin Mike. Sex and violence became intertwined for him through the viewing of Mike's Vietnam photos and the graphic pornography Ramirez favored, images of bondage and simulated rape. Some have theorized that Richard Ramirez's violent acting out on these fantasies may in part have resulted from his early serious head injuries. Simply put, damage to the frontal and temporal lobes of the brain has been linked to diminished impulse control, volatile emotions, and physical aggression. This is not to say that this causes a person to become violent, only that it may be a contributing factor. If Ramirez already had violent fantasies, Impairment in this portion of his brain may have lowered his inhibitions, allowing him to more easily act out on them. His increased drug use also worked to fuel his fantasies and lower his inhibitions even further. He'd also learned to break into homes, how to avoid detection, was introduced to peeping into the homes of unsuspecting women for sexual gratification. It's a long list of possible contributing factors that led to the birth of a serial killer. At age 15, Richard took a job at a Holiday Inn doing general maintenance. He liked having a master key to the hotel rooms that gave him the ability to enter rooms and spy on unsuspecting guests. He began taking more risks and would sometimes sneak into rooms while the occupants were asleep. He would crawl silently along the floor and steal purses, wallets, and jewelry without being detected. At 15, Richard was already 5 foot 10 inches tall although still very thin. He had thick wavy black hair that he wore long and had very dark eyes. Many commented on his dark good looks, but he rarely had a girlfriend. That kind of relationship didn't thrill him. What did thrill him 
was peeping on women and masturbating while fantasizing about tying them up. One day he took the fantasy to the next level. He observed a young, attractive female guest alone in her room, getting ready for bed. When she entered the bathroom, he let himself into the room with his passkey. He hid in the closet until she left the bathroom and caught her from behind as she walked past. He pinned her to the floor and put a gag in her mouth, planning to rape her. Don't scream and don't look at me, he told her. She complied. Just as he began attempting to rape the woman, her husband returned to the room and caught the skinny 15-year-old in the act of assaulting his wife. The man attacked Ramirez with his fists and feet, knocking him out before kicking him some more. The police were called and Ramirez was arrested. He had to be taken to a hospital to be treated for his injuries before he was booked. He was charged as a juvenile and released to his mother. He told her that the woman had invited him in and her husband had found them together. That is why the woman cried rape, he said. His parents believed his story. Charges were dropped because the couple had just been visiting El Paso and lived in another state. They did not want to travel back to testify, and so Ramirez was let off the hook on the rape charge. As soon as Ramirez turned 18 in 1978, he left El Paso for good. He took a bus to Los Angeles, where he continued his life of burglarizing homes and scoring cocaine. He took a room at a seedy motel near downtown Los Angeles. He felt at home living in Skid Row. He enjoyed being anonymous, blending in among the many transients in the area. He also liked the close proximity to the bus station, where he could easily fence his stolen goods. Another added attraction for him were the scores of adult bookstores, triple X theaters, and peep shows in the neighborhood. He would sometimes visit his brother Reuben, but he had settled down somewhat, now married and with a child. No matter, Richard enjoyed being alone. He also became addicted to cocaine and now began injecting it rather than just snorting it as he had previously. He needed more money to feed his habit, and so instead of renting even the cheapest hotel rooms, began living and sleeping in stolen cars. He neglected his health and hygiene living on junk food and sugary sodas, and his teeth began to rot. He was rail-thin, and his face was sallow-complected and gaunt. Ramirez lived this life for years. He immersed himself further into his drug addiction, and at the same time, became more interested in Satanism. He studied the book, The Satanic Bible, written by Anton LaVey, founder of the Church of Satan in San Francisco. He even made a trip to San Francisco to meet LaVey, LaVey recalled his meeting with Richard Ramirez, saying that he found him to be shy and that he'd quite like the young man. During a ceremony at the church, Ramirez said he felt touched by Satan and even called his mother afterwards to ask her to pray for him. She pleaded with him to come home. Instead, he returned to Los Angeles an avowed Satanist and now spoke incessantly about Satan and his power. He began to believe that if he served Satan, he would be protected. In other words, he would not be caught or arrested for any criminal activities he may engage in, as long as he performed them in the name of Satan. He may have wanted to believe in this protective power, since soon after returning to L.A., he was arrested for car theft and spent several months in jail. He used that time to study more about Satanism. He decided not to join any groups or cults, but simply wanted to be a lone soldier for Satan. After a few years in Los Angeles, Ramirez decided it was time to act. He wanted to please his dark lord, and he wanted to act out on his violent fantasies. Richard Ramirez would go on to terrorize greater Los Angeles between the summers of 1984 and 1985. He would be dubbed the Night Stalker by the media. Ramirez lived at the Cecil Hotel during his most prolific time of killing. He would murder at least 13 people and rape and assault many more. The following is an account of some of his crimes. In June of 1984, Richard Ramirez was casing homes to break into, but he was no longer interested in simply stealing valuables. If he took away some things, that would just be icing on the cake. No, he was interested not in stealing possessions, but souls. 
he first scoped out a small apartment complex in Glassell Park. The building was located close to the famous Forest Lawn Memorial Park, where celebrities like Michael Jackson, Clark Gable, and Elizabeth Taylor are buried. On this warm June night, Ramirez removed a screen from the window of apartment number two, the home of 79-year-old Jenny Vincow. All was quiet inside as he entered. He looked around, but there was nothing of value he could see. He noiselessly entered the bedroom. He stood over the woman and watched her for a few moments as she slept. He raised a six-inch hunting knife high above her and plunged it into her chest over and over. As she woke and began to scream, he slashed at her throat, nearly decapitating her. After she was dead, he washed up in the small bathroom, looked around one last time for valuables, and decided to take a small clock radio with him. He walked slowly and casually to a stolen dark blue Toyota parked nearby and made his way back downtown without being spotted. Satiated for a while, Ramirez continued to burglarize homes, but did not attempt another murder until early the following year. In March 1985, he bought a stolen 22 caliber gun from another burglar who hung out at the bus terminal. He then stole a different car and went hunting for his next victim. On March 17th, he spotted 22-year-old Maria Hernandez arrive home from visiting her boyfriend. She lived in Rosemead with her 34-year-old roommate, Del Okazaki. Maria drove into her garage and exited her vehicle. As she did so, Ramirez entered the garage silently. He wore a baseball cap pulled low to hide his face. Maria moved to the door inside the garage that led into her condominium, pushing the button to close the garage door on her way in. As it was closing, Ramirez ducked under it and towards Maria, his hat falling off as he did so. She turned and saw the man approaching with a gun pointed at her. She instinctively raised the hand that held her car keys, as if to ward off the bullet, as she screamed out, No! As if by a miracle, the bullet struck the keys in her hand and was deflected. She fell to the ground, not moving. Thinking he'd shot her, Ramirez moved past her and into the house. Dale was coming into the kitchen and just saw the dark figure of the man entering, gun in hand. She ducked behind the kitchen island to hide. After several moments, hearing nothing, Dale stood up slowly to peek over the counter. Just as she did so, Ramirez fired, hitting her squarely in the forehead. She fell to the floor, dead. Maria had ran out of the garage and around towards the front of the house in a panic. As she did so, she saw Ramirez emerge from the front door. He spotted her and pointed the gun at her a second time. She began to plead with him not to shoot her as she ducked down behind a car. He was surprised to see her alive and quickly moved to get into his stolen car and leave the area. He'd made two major mistakes. He'd left the living witness and he'd lost his baseball cap, a black cap with the name of the rock band ACDC stitched on the front in red. Keyed up from these attacks, Ramirez wasn't done yet. As he drove down the freeway, he saw 30-year-old law student Veronica Yu pulling off the exit towards Monterey Park, and followed her. Veronica, however, noticed the Toyota following her. She began looking for a police officer, but not spotting one, decided to pull her car over to see if she could get a closer look at the car or the driver. Ramirez knew he'd been spotted and drove on. Veronica then did something very risky. She began following him in her car. After she followed him for a couple of blocks, Ramirez pulled over. He tucked the gun into the waistband of his pants under his shirt before approaching her car. He did not see a couple parked nearby who were witnesses to the following exchange. As he approached, Veronica rolled down her window. Why are you following me, she demanded. He answered that he wasn't following her. He just thought he knew her, that's all. She continued to insist that he was following her and demanded an explanation. He continued to deny any wrongdoing. Liar, she yelled at him. I'm calling the police. Now he became angry and began trying to pull her out through the car window. Veronica began to scream. The driver's side door was locked, so he ran around to the passenger's side and opened it before Veronica had time to push down the lock. He jumped into the car and fired the gun into her side. 
she opened her door and tried to run from the car and was shot a second time. She fell into the street. Ramirez laughed and called her a bitch before returning to his car. He drove away, ditching the stolen vehicle before returning on foot to his hotel room. Several people witnessed the exchange between the tall man dressed in black and Veronica Yu. The couple in the nearby car went to her aid and called police in an ambulance. Others nearby who'd heard the voices in the street also saw them struggle, heard the shots, and saw the man flee. Veronica was quickly transported to the emergency room, but was pronounced dead just moments after arriving. No one saw the man's face, and Veronica, although briefly conscious, could not speak to emergency workers to provide any information. Although Ramirez had made many sloppy mistakes during his deadly mission, he had not been caught. He now believed that Satan was protecting him and would aid him in committing even more crimes. He became more confident as he continued to seek out victims. Less than two weeks later, he entered a home in Whittier that he had previously burglarized. He shot and killed 64-year-old Vincent Zara. He then attacked his 44-year-old wife, Maxine, beating her and tying her up. He ransacked the home for valuables. While he was gone, Maxine broke free of her bindings and retrieved a shotgun, but it was unloaded. Ramirez returned and shot her three times and then stabbed her with a carving knife he'd found in the kitchen. After she was dead, he mutilated her body, gouging out her eyes and placing them in a jewelry box, which he then took back with him to his room at the Cecil Hotel as a grisly souvenir. Shoe prints from Avia brand athletic shoes were found in the flower beds under the windows of the Zara home, providing the police with their only clue. On May 29th, Ramirez broke into the home of two 80-year-old sisters and bludgeoned both Mabel Bell and Florence Lang. He then raped Lang. Before leaving, he drew pentagrams on Bell's body and the walls of both bedrooms in lipstick. Later reports would reveal that Ramirez would return to the Cecil after each murder and remove his bloody clothes, disposing of them in the dumpster behind the hotel. He would then walk to his room wearing only his underwear. However, this would call no special attention towards him as the residents of the low-rent Cecil Hotel were made up of the poor, the drug-addicted, sex workers, and the mentally ill. The day after the attack on the elderly sisters, Ramirez snuck into the home of 42-year-old Carol Kyle. At gunpoint, he tied up both Carol and her 11-year-old son, locking the boy in the closet after he'd forced him to take him to the family's valuables. Ramirez then returned to Carol and raped her, repeatedly telling her not to look at him or he'd, quote, cut her eyes out. Afterwards, he retrieved the boy and bound him to his mother, leaving them both alive. People in Los Angeles were terrified by the reports of so many attacks. However, authorities did not immediately attribute them to one person. Unlike most serial killers, Ramirez did not have any discernible M.O. The victims ranged from young women to couples to senior citizens. The method of killing ranged from shooting to stabbing to bludgeoning. Some were raped, others were not. Some were left alive, while others were not only killed, but mutilated. There was no pattern that would point to a sole killer at large. As well, Ramirez struck across jurisdictions, so many police departments at first believed they were looking for different perpetrators. The attacks continued and increased in frequency beginning in July of 1985. On July 2nd, Ramirez stabbed a 75-year-old woman to death in her home in Arcadia. On July 5th, he beat a 16-year-old with a tire iron as she slept in her bed in Sierra Madre. He then tried to strangle her with a telephone cord, but as he wrapped it around her neck, he was startled to see electrical sparks coming from the cord. He dropped it and fled, believing that Jesus had saved her. She was severely injured, but survived. On July 7th, he beat to death a 61-year-old woman who was sleeping on her couch in Monterey Park. That same night, he robbed and raped another woman in her home, also in Monterey Park, but left her alive. On July 20th, he entered the Glendale home of an older couple and hacked them with a machete before killing them both with a bullet to the head. From July to mid-August, Ramirez attacked three more couples in the Los Angeles area. Each time, he killed the male occupant before raping and sometimes killing the female, 
In homes with children present, he would enlist them to retrieve valuables and then tie or lock them up, but he would leave them alive. With multiple witnesses now giving a description of the attacker, Ramirez decided to skip town and made his way to San Francisco. There he attacked another couple, Peter and Barbara Pan. He shot and killed Peter before beating, raping, and shooting Barbara Pan. Less than a week later, he was back in Southern California, stealing a car and traveling 75 miles south of L.A. to Mission Viejo. He was prowling around the home of James Romero, Jr., when his son, 13-year-old James Romero III, heard a noise and went to wake his parents. Ramirez, hearing noise from inside the house, fled, but not before young James was able to get a description of the car he was driving, including the color, make, model, as well as a partial license plate number. Ramirez quickly picked out another home and attacked Bill Cairns and his fiancée, Inez Erickson. Although shot three times, Cairns survived. Erickson was raped and beaten and made to say that she, quote, loved Satan. Before leaving, Ramirez told Erickson, tell them the Night Stalker was here, using the moniker given to him by the media. But if Satan was protecting Ramirez, he wasn't doing a very good job. The stolen car that the Romero boy had described was found at the Wilshire Center, where it had been ditched. On August 28th, police technicians were able to recover a single fingerprint from the rearview mirror and matched it to one Richard Munoz Ramirez, who'd previously been arrested for car theft and drug violations. His mugshot was plastered in newspapers across California within hours. Law enforcement officers and citizens now had a face and a name to attach to the boogeyman known as the Night Stalker. At the same time, before the news had hit the airwaves, Ramirez decided to take a bus trip to Tucson, Arizona, to visit his brother Robert. When he arrived, he called his brother's home, and his wife answered. Robert's wife didn't like Richard, and she informed him that his brother wasn't home, but she didn't invite him over. He passed some time inside the bus station, listening to music on his cassette player. He called again, but was told Robert still wasn't home. He had an uneasy feeling, and decided rather than wait any longer— to get back on the bus and return to Los Angeles. It was August 30th, and the bus was to arrive in downtown L.A. at 7.30 on the morning of August 31st. Meanwhile, back in Los Angeles, a press conference had been held to broadcast a picture of the suspected night stalker. Ramirez was described as a 25-year-old petty thief and drifter from El Paso who often frequented cheap hotels in the downtown area. His mugshot had been plastered on every paper beginning on the morning of August 30th, the morning Ramirez had boarded the bus for Tucson. Now that the bus was rolling into downtown Los Angeles, he was completely unaware that he had been identified throughout California as public enemy number one. It was August 31st, and as the bus arrived at 7.30 a.m., the heat of the day could already be felt. It was going to be another scorcher. The entire sweltering hot summer had been made extra miserable due to fear of the Night Stalker. Los Angeles area residents kept their doors and windows closed and locked against the threat of the predator who was breaking into homes in the dead of the night, beating, raping, and killing residents. As a result, even a small cooling breeze could not bring them any relief during the long, hot summer. Nerves were frayed, and now that the monster had been identified, tempers flared. How dare this monster! this desgraciado, as Latinos might call him, violate their homes, steal from them, rape and beat them. And he was one of them. He was a Mexican-American who targeted Latino communities, Monterey Park, Burbank, Whittier. He lived in their midst and terrorized their neighborhoods, including their senior citizens. He would not get away with it, they now vowed. Everyone was on the lookout for the monster. Ramirez stepped off the bus at the downtown station and walked a few short feet to a liquor store where he purchased a coffee and pastry. As he paid, he noticed two elderly Mexican women pointing and looking at him, shocked looks on their faces. He heard one of them say, El Matador, or The Killer, and wondered what was going on. His eyes then fell on a newspaper rack, where his picture was printed under a large heading that read, Stalker Suspect. 25-year-old L.A. man 
named in seven-month spree of killings. Grabbing the paper, he sprinted from the store. The store owner had already called police, and before long, police units and helicopters converged on downtown Los Angeles. Ramirez needed to disappear, so he ran. He vaulted over fences and through yards, heading towards the Santa Ana freeway. Once he reached it, he dashed across the busy road and was nearly hit by a car. He thought if he could get on a bus, he might be able to make it to the Mexican border and disappear. Once on the east side of the freeway, he jumped on a bus, paid his fare, and sat down. In seconds, the other passengers on the bus recognized him, holding up their newspapers and pointing. He bolted off the bus at the next stop and found himself smack in the middle of East L.A. He'd barely begun to walk down the street when a group of Mexican boys began following him, calling out and identifying him as the Night Stalker. I have a gun, he threatened, beginning to run. Get the fuck away from me. He needed to steal a car to get away, and fast. Police helicopters could be heard circling in the distance. He first spotted Manuela Villanueva sitting in a car at the corner of Indiana in Whittier. She was waiting for her boyfriend, Carmelo Robles, who was inside the grocery store. Ramirez demanded that Manuela give up her car, first telling her he needed it because his mother was dying. She told him he couldn't have it. He told her he had a gun and tried to pull her from her car. Just then, her boyfriend came out of the store and yelled at Ramirez. Another man, Arthur Benavides, emerged from a nearby barbershop, and they both began running after Ramirez as he sprinted down an alley. Ramirez then scaled a six-foot fence before dropping into a yard on Perry Street. He continued to run as more people came out of their homes and gave chase, some screaming, El Matador! Everyone recognized him, and there was nowhere he could hide. It was blazingly hot, and Ramirez was dripping with sweat, but he continued to run. He headed down Hubbard Street and was now in the heart of East L.A. If he'd tried, he could not have picked a worse spot as everyone in East L.A. knew exactly who he was. They had been talking of nothing but Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker suspect, for the past 24 hours. He hopped another fence, landing in the yard of Luis Munoz, who was cooking on his outdoor grill. Who the hell are you? Munoz demanded as Ramirez dropped into his yard. He didn't answer fast enough, and Munoz began striking him with his large steel barbecue tool. Ramirez quickly left, jumping over yet another fence. He thought that luck was finally with him. There was a red Mustang with the keys in it, running in the next driveway. It was jacked up on boxes, but it was unoccupied. He jumped into it and began to step on the pedal. The car belonged to Faustino Pignon's daughter. Pignon was working on the car's transmission that morning, and had left for just a moment to retrieve a tool. Before Ramirez saw him, Faustino grabbed him through the window and now had him in a firm grasp around his neck. Get away, Ramirez threatened. I have a gun. I'll kill you. I'm taking the car. You're not taking this car, Faustino replied, yanking on the steering wheel. The car veered into the wall of the house and stalled. Faustino quickly reached in and pulled the keys out of the ignition. Ramirez leapt out of the car and vaulted over another fence. He then saw 28-year-old Angela De La Torre getting into her car in front of her home. Ramirez rushed towards her and demanded her keys. She recognized him and began to scream, but still refused to hand over her keys. He punched her in the stomach. Her neighbor and his sons heard her cries for help and came running. At the same time, Angela's husband, Manuel, came running out of the house. Ramirez was attempting to drive away in the car while the neighbor screamed at him. Manuel grabbed a two-foot-long metal bar that was used to shut the driveway gate as he approached the chaotic scene. The neighbors were screaming, his wife was crying, and seeing her upset and Ramirez in her car, he became enraged. Ramirez was still trying to start the car when Manuel opened the door and hit him over the back of the head with the metal bar and demanded he get out of his wife's car. Ramirez jumped out of the car and began running down the middle of Hubbard Street. People emerged from their homes and yards and gave chase, some brandishing bats and clubs. He continued to run, but as the crowd began to gain on him, he turned around and stuck out his tongue, hissing at them. A few of the older women who witnessed this started making the sign of the cross. This guy was possessed by El Diablo. They were sure of it. This gave Manuel de la Torre the few seconds he needed to gain on Ramirez. He took a few steps closer to him and swung the metal bar once again. It struck Ramirez on the top of his head 
and he fell down into the street. Delatore stood over him, screaming, Go ahead, go ahead, man. Get up and you're fucking dead. He called out to Angela to retrieve his gun from the house. Her neighbor quickly talked her out of it. Police sirens could be heard coming closer. This guy wasn't going anywhere, she told her friend, and they should just let the police handle it. Both the LAPD and the sheriff's department arrived in moments. As one of the deputies approached, responding to a man with a gun call, somebody said, It's him! We caught him! The deputy saw Ramirez bleeding from the head and lying in the street and immediately recognized him. Holy shit, it's the Night Stalker, he thought. What's your name, he asked the bleeding man. Ricardo Ramirez, he admitted. All of East L.A. came together to vanquish the boogeyman known as the Night Stalker. Months of detective work, collaboration between police jurisdictions, and investigators all led to the capture of the person responsible for over a dozen murders and sexual assaults. Ultimately, Richard Ramirez was convicted of 13 counts of murder, 5 counts of attempted murder, 11 counts of sexual assault, and 14 counts of burglary. On November 9, 1989, he was sentenced to death and sent to San Quentin's death row. Asked about his death sentence, he infamously replied, Big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. Ramirez spent 23 years on death row before dying of cancer at the age of 53 in 2013. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'll be back with part two next week where I'll continue with the infamous history of the Cecil Hotel. Next time, I'll tell you about another serial killer who stayed at the Cecil and may have done so as an homage to Richard Ramirez. I'll also detail the case of the mysterious death of Elisa Lamb and the bizarre events surrounding her stay at the Cecil Hotel. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.